Welcome to the Three Martini Lunch. Grab a stool next to Greg Corumbus of Radio America and Jim Garrity of National Review. Three Martinis coming up. Happy Friday. Pull up the stool. We're glad you're here. It is the end of a very long week. <laughs> Jim, yesterday, like you said, it felt like nine days. That might even have been generous. Uh, we're brought to you today by NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite.com slash martini. Much more on that. A little bit later in the podcast, good, bad, and crazy martinis for conservatives today. And it is our final regular edition of the Three Martini Lunch for 2019. Starting Monday, we are going to have our special year-end awards. Six different podcasts covering 18 different categories. The best, the most, the highest, the worst, uh, all sorts of things. uh, From rising political star to uh, people fading into oblivion. Underrated, overrated. Best idea, worst idea, uh, a scathing look at the media, and all wrapping up on New Year's Eve with our person of the year, turncoat of the year, and our predictions for 2020. So all of that to look forward to. But today, the usual format, we start with the good martini and Jim. It's the martini that just keeps giving. We talked about this on Wednesday as the idea started percolating into the into the media. We talked about it even more yesterday after the impeachment vote, and we're talking about it again on Friday that the House Democrats are in absolutely no rush to hand over these impeachment articles that absolutely could not wait since uh, our next election is in peril as long as Trump remains president. He's technically been impeached, but now we've got legal experts saying he's not actually impeached until the House delivers the, the articles of impeachment to the Senate. So we'll let that legal argument play out. In the meantime, Democrats may never hand over the articles of impeachment so long as Mitch McConnell doesn't agree to their demands about how the trial ought to proceed. Uh, The latest incarnation of this is James Clyburn. He is a member of the House Democratic Leadership, congressman from South Carolina, talking with John Berman of CNN. This was actually on Thursday, but Jim, this exchange is amazing. How long are you willing to wait? As long as it takes. Uh, Even if he he doesn't uh, come around to committing to a fair trial, Keep those articles here, uh, so keep it as long as it takes. Uh, if you know, and he's told you what he's going to do, uh, it's almost like, uh, let's give him a fair trial uh, and hang him. I mean, it's the verse of that. As long as it takes, are you willing yes. to hold the articles indefinitely? If Mitch McConnell doesn't concede the points that you're asking him to, are you suggesting it's possible you will never transmit the articles of impeachment? If it were me... Yes, that's what I'm saying. I have no idea uh, what the speaker will do. Uh, But if you have a preordained outcome that's negative uh, to your actions, why walk into it? I'd much rather uh, not um, uh, take that chance. There is no preordained outcome in the House at all, Jim. So uh, what do you make of the Democrats' hurry-up-and-never-mind approach here? For starters, uh, I've been on CNN's morning show way back when. They haven't had me on in a while. I hope it's. I hope I haven't said anything to offend them, but I may very well do that again. But anyway, I've been on with John Berman. John Berman's a really nice guy, and I think well of him. But if he's listening, John, my friend, my buddy, my pal, compadre, how did the words "hang him" not jump out at you in a conversation when this when a lawmaker is discussing the president of the United States? How how to hang him? <laughs> How does that not? How does that not set off like big red sirens in your mind? Oh, he means metaphorically hang the president. Yeah, I, I hope so. Right? You know. 
But that, that certainly gets rid of the idea that this is some sort of, you know, angry mob coming after the president or something like that. One of our recurring jokes is, you know, thank goodness it's Friday, Greg. Thank goodness it is Friday because this is kind of the most perfectly surreal point to end the week and perhaps to end the year uh, in which House Democrats are really convinced that if they never send over these these impeachment articles, that somehow McConnell and Trump will will eventually beg them to start bringing them over. <laughs> it's, it's this utterly bizarre. I believe the next move is they will hold their breath until uh, uh, the, the Senate decides to change the rules or something. You begin to wonder about lawmakers operating in a bubble, right? Where, where they, you know, most of the people they interact with are either working for them as staff or asking them for a favor. People come into their office and want something. So they very rarely hear any from anybody who doesn't owe them anything or who doesn't need anything from them or who isn't in fear of getting fired by them. So you hear a lot of, that's a great idea, boss. Yes, boss, that's a wonderful idea. There's, is there no one around the House Democratic leadership who say, guys, this is not going to work? Mitch McConnell is not going to say, oh, okay, I'll change the rules the way you want. I figured maybe this would be like a 24-hour idea that, that would you know float through their heads and Maybe they might even go through a, a, you know, pro forma, go through the motions to show their grassroots that they tried. Greg, it sounds like they're digging in here. Well, yeah, they left town and uh, they're not coming back till next year. So it's at least hanging out there for a few more weeks. Even more. I mean, the message from Nancy Pelosi right before we started taping is the president is a menace to the Constitution. He must be stopped at all costs and he must be stopped as quickly as possible. Also, we invite the president to give his State of the Union address to the House of, uh, in February 4th. Yes. We gotta get rid of, but he's going to be around for a while. I suppose she has to do that. But uh, talk about stepping on their own message here. And, you know, it's one of those things where you begin to realize they really haven't thought this through step by step. They just got here. And maybe they didn't think they'd have the votes or something like that. And they've just suddenly realized, oh, wait, the Senate's going to acquit this guy. What do we do? We're not going to hand it over to you, which, oh, by the way, in the eyes of constitutional scholars and legal scholars, um, until the articles get transferred, it's not actually like officially or legally he's not considered impeached. And boy, if you don't think Trump is going to be beating that drum for a long time, please let them keep going with this. Please let them dig into the, you know, let them keep digging this hole until they break through all the way to China. Now, those defending Jim Clyburn say the point he was trying to make with the hang him comment is, uh, when you say we'll give him a fair trial and hang him, this is the opposite, that uh, uh, the Senate plans to give a fair trial and then acquit because so many people have supposedly uh, made up their minds. But, of course, if, you know, uh, it had been the Clinton era and hang him or, or something like that with that impeachment, I- I'm sure that the, all the Democratic media folks would have completely understood what the what the point was being made there. Uh, Jim, I'm also curious uh, to see your reaction to the fact that Adam Schiff now says he's got new information and now he's going after Mike Pence. So uh, just in case he thought the insanity had <laughs> But this is not partisan. <laughs> this is not about undoing the 2016 election. Yes. Do you think when he goes by Nancy Pelosi, he starts humming Hail to the Chief? Mike Pence, you didn't go to the inauguration. You must be impeached as well. Maybe that's the idea. I don't know. But uh, Jim, I don't know if they've looked at their polling numbers on this after they made this strong case that you've got to get rid of the president before the election ramps up because he's corrupting the election. But uh, this strategy certainly does not mesh with that message. But uh, maybe they haven't done their polling yet. If we don't impeach the president and remove him from office, he will cheat to stay in office. <laughs> and then they go to their fundraiser in the evening. We are going to win in 2020. 
We are confident of it. We know we're going to win. Well, wait a second. Wait a second. You know, more, more contradictions there. But hey, no, look, they're just, they're just doing the fundraising. Who cares? Yes, exactly. They might know their numbers. But if you don't know your numbers at your business, you've got some trouble. The problem many growing businesses have and that keeps you from knowing your numbers potentially is that hodgepodge of business systems. Uh, new business owners and sometimes existing business owners for quite a while have one system for accounting, another for sales, another for inventory, and so on and so on. It's just a big, inefficient mess, taking up too much time and too many resources, and that can only hurt the bottom line. Introducing NetSuite by Oracle, the business management software that handles every aspect of your business in an easy-to-use cloud platform, giving you the visibility and control that you need to grow. With NetSuite, you save time, money, unneeded headaches by managing sales, finance, and accounting, orders, and human resources instantly right from your desktop or phone. That's why NetSuite is the world's number one cloud business system. And thousands of the best-known brands and fastest-growing companies are using NetSuite to manage their business, and it's available to you. You'll learn how to optimize your processes, drive operational excellence, sell across more channels, and a whole lot more. And if that's not enough, NetSuite is also offering you valuable insights on your business with a free guide, Seven Key Strategies to Grow Your Profits. It's all at netsuite.com slash martini. That's netsuite.com slash martini to download your free guide, Seven Key Strategies to Grow Your Profits. Again, netsuite.com slash martini. Jim, I can't think of anything that's an indication that we all need a break, hosts and listeners alike, than uh, a Democratic debate the same week as we go through impeachment. But nonetheless, that's where we were. On Thursday night, it was at Loyola Marymount University because, sadly, the strike ended there and the candidates actually showed up. And we had a two and a half hour debate last night, which we definitely didn't need, but we got it anyway. So uh, seven candidates on stage this time instead of 10. And I think we got some more direct exchanges as a result of that. But I'll I'll wait for your analysis on that. Uh, Our bad martini officially is uh, Joe Biden. He's getting a lot of praise for uh, not mangling himself uh, to the extent that he has in in previous debates. Uh, He seemed to be on point, defended himself on Afghanistan, for example. Uh, I'll let folks decide how well he defended himself on Afghanistan. But here's the bad martini. Uh, Tim Alberta, National Review alum, who's now with Politico and is one of the panelists, asking uh, actually challenging questions to Democrats, which is a change. Uh, He asked Joe Biden about uh, his position on energy policy and moving towards uh, green energy and the impact that will actually have on our economy and real people. Uh, Here's that exchange. Vice President Biden, I'd like to ask you, three consecutive American presidents have enjoyed stints of explosive economic growth due to a boom in oil and natural gas production. As president, would you be willing to sacrifice some of that growth even knowing potentially that it could displace thousands, maybe hundreds of thousands of blue-collar workers in the interest of transitioning to that greener economy? The answer is yes. The answer is yes. And then he goes on to explain that because in the green economy, there will be lots and lots of jobs doing other things in the energy sector. We have an opportunity to put 550,000 charging stations so that we own the electrical vehicle market, creating millions of jobs for people installing them, as well as making sure that we own the electric vehicle market. There's so many things we can do. Jim, it reminds me of uh, this moment from the 2016 campaign. I'm the only candidate which has a policy about how to bring economic opportunity using clean, renewable energy as the key into coal country because we're going to put a lot of coal miners and coal companies out of business. Right, Tim? And we're going to make it clear that we don't want to forget those people. 
So, Jim, I don't think Biden understands, just like Hillary doesn't understand how disgustingly condescending it is when politicians say, yeah, we're going to take away your job. We're going to kill your industry. But don't worry. We'll take care of you with something else. We are going to save the planet by killing your job. <laughs> Pretty much. Um, good, good luck, everybody, being, being thrilled about that. Um, so the first thing that kind of comes to mind, I suppose if you are a gas station attendant and they decide to shut down the Texaco station because we've decided to, you know, uh, you know, make uh, oil and gas no longer the, the you know, as important in our energy diet, so to speak, and we're going to put it more towards solar and wind, you know, you can work, you're going to work at a electric car charging station instead of a gas station. All right, I guess, you know, all you have to do is sit there behind the glass and not get robbed. Um, you know, there aren't a lot, other than New Jersey, they don't have full service stations in most places. But if you'd say you're a geologist and your job is to go out and look for places where there's probably going to be good res- reservoirs of natural gas or oil or for fracking and stuff like that, I'm not so sure. You know, well, don't worry, there's good news. The, the solar panel factory is hiring. I don't know if everyone's you know, job skills will necessarily transfer from one part of the energy uh, sector in the energy economy to another. And it's just kind of a, you know, it seems very poli- Washington politician to say, oh, don't worry, you'll find another job. It, it, you, you can find any kind of job. They're fine. They're, the energy industry, all this stuff is kind of the same. Solar, wind, you know, you, you're, it involves plugging stuff in. Don't worry, you're going to be fine. As for the overall performance of Biden, yeah, it was a better performance of Biden. You listen to some of the praise afterwards, Greg. There was a lot of, he spoke in a lot more complete sentences, sentences tonight. <laughs> Perhaps I shouldn't make fun of him for that. He remained upright uh, in, a, in a vertical position for the entirety of the two hours and 20 to 30 minutes. By the way, two hours and 20, 30 minutes of a, of a debate with seven candidates. I don't like these debates. And the irony is, like, at first I was like, okay, it's too many candidates, right? That's the problem. You can't have a good debate with 10 candidates on stage. We're finally going to have seven and it'll be better. And it wasn't that much better. And so, okay, maybe it really wasn't the problem. Okay, I, I still think having 10, can- 10 candidates on stage is a bad idea. But you only had seven um, and you ended up with the same kind of whatever questions got asked. And I thought the moderators had a much better night. I thought our old friend Tim Alberta was very good. Uh, Could have done without Judy Woodruff mixing up Andrew Yang and Tom Steyer. Greg, we've all been there. Um, They look so similar. (laughs) I I shouldn't do that because, you know, we were taping an editor's podcast yesterday and I'm I'm pretty sure I called Rich Lowry Greg at least once. Could have been three or four times. this is what happens when I do a bunch of podcasts all in one day. But anyway, so the, the questions were fine. The answers were almost all, ah, you've asked about this topic. I have nothing specific about that question that I'd like to say. But let me give you this chunk of my stump speech that is loosely tied to this topic. And we will build a better America. Nobody answered the questions. And there's not really huge differences amongst these candidates on policy. So you don't end up a little bit on, on Medicare for all. And eventually, like, you know, an hour and 20 minutes, they got into it. But it got into the wine cave and Amy Klobuchar felt the need to tell us she'd been to the wind cave in South Dakota. And it suddenly turned into a travelogue. And I just, uh, you know, hour and 20 minutes of it were really boring. A little bit of flare up. And then, of course, Amy Klobuchar had to play the Cory Booker role. You know what that is, right, Greg? Can't we just all get along? Exactly. What? Why? Why are we sitting here arguing? Because it's a democratic presidential debate. What do you think? You're, what do you think? Is a Tea Party? 
Well, let's get to our crazy martini now, and you've, you've previewed it well, and that's the uh, most inane parts of the debate, which is not easy to find uh, the most inane because there's many of those moments in, in a Democratic presidential debate. Uh, but uh, a couple of dust-ups here that uh, I think are, are most uh, significant. Uh, first of all, you've got uh, the wine caves, which you mentioned, and that was because Pete Buttigieg held a fundraiser in a wine cave. Elizabeth Warren didn't like that. Pete Buttigieg didn't like getting called out on it. The mayor just recently had a fundraiser that was held in a wine cave full of crystals and served $900 a bottle wine. Billionaires in wine caves should not pick the next president of the United States. Mr. Mayor, your response. You know, according to Forbes magazine, I am literally the only person on this stage who's not a millionaire or a billionaire. So if this is important, this is the problem with issuing purity tests you cannot yourself pass. So they went at it for a while. I I find it fascinating that people applaud by someone telling them they're the poorest candidate. But uh, apparently that means they're somehow not beholden. Uh, Jim, then there's also the selfie issue. Elizabeth Warren talking about that. She's closing in on 100,000 selfies with uh, voters. Uh, Here's what she said uh, to the last question, which was my least favorite, where Judy Woodruff asked, uh, what would you like to ask forgiveness for or give a gift this uh, holiday season to another candidate? I know that sometimes um, I get really worked up. And sometimes I get a little hot. I don't really mean to. What happens is when you do 100,000 selfies with people, you hear enough stories about people who are really down to their last moments. And so you got a lot of feminists out there, Jim, since both uh, Warren and Klobuchar apologized basically for getting uh, fired up or even emotional at times over issues that somehow uh, they're held to a different standard. Uh, the big uh, dust up over this is that they're not actually selfies and someone else is taking the picture than the people in the pictures. But uh, what do you make of the fact that selfies in wine caves are the big takeaways from last night? Well, I, I thought about it. And at first I was like, why is Warren going? But I suddenly realized, OK, at the, the absolute kind of crux of the Elizabeth Warren philosophy is that there is nothing good that comes from a billionaire in a cave. And this is because she's like Bain taking over Gotham City, targeting the, the rich and the uprising and making people live in this great, you know, uh, anger of class warfare and all that kind of stuff. She's always had a beef against Bruce Wayne. And that explains why she doesn't like to see billionaires getting together in a cave. One of, <laughs> one of them will turn out to be Batman. Um, first of all, you go back to Elizabeth Warren's Senate campus. She held high dollar fundraisers just like everybody else. She transferred a big old pile of money from, from rich donors, from the Senate campaign to her presidential campaign. Don't let her fool you. That, oh, I've never hung out with millionaires and billionaires. Never mind. What's her net worth? Who, who do you think she was the, uh, the, the, uh, uh, pro, the, the cooperating witness in all those civil cases for? Okay. By the way, she made like 900 grand from Harvard over a two-year span. So just stop telling us how you're, you know, part of the proletariat and, you know, all that kind of stuff. <laughs> Second of all, I think Budetage, you know, sorry, Buttigieg. So it's apparently I've been told numerous times that Budetage is wrong, even though people are holding up signs saying boot edge edge. He counterpunched pretty well. I, I think her, her hypocrisy on this is kind of intolerable. And I'm struck by the fact that one of Elizabeth Warren's, you know, hey, I can handle this. I am tough. I am strong. I am ready for the presidency. Is that she keeps saying, well, I did 100,000 selfies. Greg, what's a selfie? A selfie is when you hold the camera and take a picture of yourself and possibly someone else. 
right? So she didn't hold the camera for all 100 of those. What she did was she stood online with a whole bunch of people and she posed for pictures. Yes. Her testimony about her endless endures, endurance and energy is that she posed for pictures for a really long time. There are a lot of supermodels who did the same thing, Greg. <laughs> Melania she 2020. Said, she warned us she was hot and, you know, supermodels are hot too. So, but um, I, look, it's a tough question from Judy, from Judy Woodruff. It's a very, you know, basically it's like, what do you have to apologize for? And I guess, you know, we, we've seen variations of this at previous debates and i'm fairly certain i think it was obama used to say uh, i don't really said that he was uh he, oh yeah what's your worst trait and he would point out that he smokes uh he's trying to quit or something like that or he might say something like uh you know i, I take it out on my staff sometimes when i'm having a bad day and hillary clinton would give the i think my flaw is i care too much you know like whenever they give you the the job interview question what is your greatest weakness the, 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 there's really not a lot of good answers. One of the few ones that I had passed along to me, and I pass along to you now, listeners, what is your weakness? You say, well, look, I can meet deadlines, but I like to think of myself as a craftsman. So if you give me two hours to complete a job, I will take the two hours. Give me two days. I'm, gonna I'm, not, I'm not great at turning stuff in early if that matters to you. Uh, or if you need it turned in early, let me know because I like to take my, like, that's the most, like, it sounds like a criticism, but really you're just talking about how great you are. And that's what all these answers <laughs> turn out to be. And hers is, you know, I, I get fired up because I just, I think about all these people in this country who need help. You know, oh, oh, poor, ah, she carries such a burden, Greg. Poor Elizabeth Warren. She's a perfectionist. Yeah, that's that's another good one. I'm a perfectionist. She hasn't cried like that since she saw somebody littering. <laughs> Yeah, I didn't see her pushing back on the fact that, uh, you know, the, the big thing the media cared about was the, uh, the lack of diversity on stage. Uh, she did not push back on that, which is probably, probably pretty smart on her part. In the end, uh, they still pretty much forgot about Andrew Yang and Tom Steyer, proportionally speaking. Um, and then uh, poor Andrew Yang got the gift question first and kind of fumbled it around. Didn't talk about uh, universal basic income, but uh, did want to give everybody his book. So uh, I know that would be probably your answer as well. Hold on a second. <laughs> If hawking people, your book is wrong, I don't want to be right. <laughs> there you uh, go, exactly. So they did point out that the two women on stage talked about their emotion, that they're too emotional. Every other guy on stage is like, buy my book. I, I know Woodruff, like maybe in a one-on-one -on -one interview, they're going to do that. And of course, the, the worst one is to get that question firsthand because I think you, know, you, you give the real answer of, yeah, here's my real last flaw. And everyone else will say, I felt a little sorry for myself when I was rescuing those orphans from the burning building. And, you know, I strained my back and I, I got down into self-pity and I actually, you know, I, I just care too much. Pretty insufferable. Um, but, uh, hey, you know what? We don't have to deal with another one of these until January. And that could not be a more wonderful sentence to hear as we exit the uh, the normal format for the year. But a quick reminder to everyone, of course, that our year-end specials with our three Martini Lunch Awards, the most prestigious awards in political podcasting, begin on Monday. So don't miss those. And let us know, uh, depending where you uh, hear your podcasts, uh, get in touch with us and let us know your choices for all these awards, too. Let's make it a lot of fun. So, uh, Jim... Let's pivot to that. In the meantime, have a much-deserved break over the weekend, and we'll uh, talk to you Monday and back to regular shows in the new year. Talk to you soon, Greg. Jim Garrity, National Review. I'm Greg Corumbus of Radio America. Thanks so much for being with us. Don't forget to check out our friends over at NetSuite, netsuite.com slash martini. And then the award shows start Monday on the Three Martini Lunch. See you then.